John chapter 8, verses 51 through 59. Truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You were not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly. Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the table, of the temple. This is the word of God. Thank you very much, Lois. Church, if you want to follow along, I'm going to be reading from that passage of Scripture, and actually we're going to go all the way back to verse 39, but we'll go through 59 this morning, which is the second half of the chapter of chapter 8. And if you haven't been with us this morning uh, or haven't been with us until this morning, we have been walking through the Gospel of John, and several Weeks ago, we talked about uh, the first half of John 8, where Jesus makes the amazing statement at the Feast of Tabernacles. And for those who aren't familiar, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the high days in the Jewish calendar. It was uh, a celebration that people of Israel would go to the temple, and there were lots of important images there. And it was at that moment when the people of Israel were gathered at Jerusalem for this particular festival that Jesus makes the statement, I am the light of the world. Now, when he says this, it immediately triggers a controversy. There were people who are questioning him. They're skeptical. But kind of the end of the, at the end of the day, there was a group of people that the text said believed in him. And it is to those people that believed in him that Jesus addresses everything that we have read or we're going to read in 31 through 59. And what I hope you're going to see is that although they gave lip service to truly believing in him, it seems as if they may not have yet had true faith. So if you would pray with me, then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just ask for your help. Lord, I know that nothing that I'm about to do as I open up your word will have any eternal value. It will not build up your people. It will not edify your people. It will not encourage your people unless your spirit takes your word and implies it to the hearts of your people for the glory of your son. And so that's what we ask this morning. Help a meager effort 
Father, to explicate your truth and let it build up your people, Lord, as it is intended to do. And Lord, we claim the promise that your word does not return to you void. And so we pray that you would do the work this morning that is intended to do for the glory of Jesus and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. There's a very famous story, you may even say legend, about a man named Charles Blondin, who in 1859 set up a tightrope across the Niagara Falls, 160 feet over the, the churning waters of the Niagara Falls. And he crossed back and forth over this throughout the summer. And then as he continued to go back and forth, the crowds around him continued to become greater and larger. And so his feats became ever more daring. He began to go across in a sack. It actually says he went across on stilts. He actually went so far as to bring a little camp stove out over the Niagara Falls and he actually cooked in omelet. Pretty amazing, right? That's why I'm like, this may be true. It may not be true. Maybe a legend. But it's a really good story. And the story is on July 15th, he actually walked backwards from the American side to the Canadian side, picked up a wheelbarrow, and then walked backwards across the line with the wheelbarrow in hand. And then he went back to the Canadian side and then back to the American side. And every time he did, the cloud would just go crazy and wild with these elated oohs and ahs. And they were just amazed that he was able to do this, right? And then he gets back to the American side after crossing with this wheelbarrow multiple times. He looks at the crowd and says, who believe I can put someone in this wheelbarrow and cart them across? Everybody, what do they say? Of course you can. We believe you can do it. And then he looks at them and says, okay, who's getting in? And immediately the cloud went silent. Now, as I mentioned before, I don't know if this was a true story or if this is a mere legend. But what I do know is that it powerfully illustrates the difference between mere lip service believing and genuine faith. And I mention that because I think that's very much what Jesus is doing in verses 31 through 59. You see, what Jesus is doing is he is looking at people that have said, I believe what you are saying. I believe that you are the light of the world. And then he just says, okay, if that's the case, get in. And we know that because in verse 31, it says they believed in him. And this same group of people, by the time we get to a chapter or verse 59, are picking up stones to kill him. And what it does for us this morning is it clarifies for us what true faith in Jesus really is. It's more than just a general appreciation of some of his teachings. It's more than just an, an acknowledgement. Oh, yeah, I believe that Jesus guy. I've heard about him. I believe he's real. True faith is a receiving and a reliance on his word as the very word of God. Let me say that again. True faith in Jesus is a receiving and a relying on his word as the very word of God. And I think we need to hear this just as the Jews needed to hear this because we are so easily misconceived or confused about what it means to believe Jesus. You see, we think it means that we believe in Jesus if we're a part of the crowd cheering him on saying, you can do it, Jesus. 
But Jesus wants us to help see, wants to make clear for us what is the nature of belief? What does it mean to truly find your life in him? And he wants to remove this category of people that stand on the sideline and say, I believe you can do it and yet are unwilling to get in the wheelbarrow. And so he does that, I believe, through a series of three alternatives that I hope are going to clarify for you what true faith in Christ actually is. First, the first alternative is it means being freed by Christ or a slave. Being freed by Christ or a slave. You see, as Americans, we are a people that are very proud to be free, aren't we? We sing movies about freedom. We have songs about freedom. Every year we celebrate our freedom with fireworks, do we not? You see, as Americans, we love and identify as a free people, which is part of the reason that Jesus's words about his offer of freedom are hard for us sometimes to receive, and it's the same reason why the Jews had trouble receiving it over 2,000 years ago. Because as we read in verse 31, Jesus said, in, in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews, again, who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's say it again. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So let's go ahead and like unpack this for a moment. He is talking to people that said they believe in him, and he begins with, if you abide in my word. So what he's doing is he is making the clear connection, or at least making the implicit statement, that just because you say you believe in Jesus does not mean that you truly are a disciple. Because he says, if you abide in my word. In other words, the proof that you are a disciple, the proof that you genuinely believe is if you abide in my word. Now, we've already talked about what this word abide means. What does it mean? It's not a word that we use a lot today. The word abide means to believe, but more than that, to obey, but more than that, to draw your strength and your life from, but more than that, to remain in. And so in John 15, Jesus is going to use the analogy of a branch and a vine. And he's going to say, you need to abide in me like a branch abides in the vine. So picture that as you're thinking about what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you are truly my disciples, you must abide in my word. Which means that you don't just agree with it. You draw your strength and your life and your direction and you bear fruit from it. Right? And then he says, if you abide in my word, then you will be truly my disciples. And again, even this language is very helpful for us because it's making clear, again, this category of people that say, I believe and yet are not truly my disciples. Because those who are truly his disciples, which means that seems like there are some people who are not truly his disciples, is if you abide in my word. In other words, the relationship between true disciples and true belief is abiding in the word of Jesus. Very simple. Okay? So then in verse 32, though, and this is the kicker, because we want to be a true disciple because of what it brings. 
He says in verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, it's not as if if following Jesus is a good idea. Following Jesus is the means by which you are freed from slavery. That if you do not follow Jesus, that if you do not abide in his word, that you are a slave. Now you may say, what does that mean? And you may even say, I'm sure at one point in my life I would have said, I'm not a slave. I'm free. I live in the land of the free, the home of the brave. I am certainly not a slave. And it's interesting because that's exactly how the Jews responded. Not that they were living in the land of the free and the home of the brave, but they they, they responded with, Jesus, I appreciate your offer of bringing freedom. I don't need it. I'm already free. Verse 33, but they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You see, they saw themselves as free based on their relationship with Abraham. They were part of the lineage of faith. Abraham was their great, 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 great grandfather. And so they, by virtue of being connected with Abraham, were free. They were not slaves. They didn't need freeing. And so Jesus clarifies for them what he means in verse 34. And he says, truly, truly. And again, when Jesus says truly and truly, I know it's for you and me like, why are you repeating yourself here? But, but just take this as an exclamation point on the front. He said, I'm about to tell you, I've, everything I say is true, but this is a true truth. This is a big truth, so pay attention. And he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, consider yourself, excuse me, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In other words, he's saying that you and I, by virtue of being born in sin, in rebellion against God, were born into sin slavery. You and I were born into a slavery we cannot see, that we do not recognize, and ultimately a slavery that we cannot escape. And church, I, I want to take a moment to just say the way that the world and the way the, lot, the world has portrayed sin as, as if it is true freedom. But we need to recognize that throughout the pages of Scripture, that is the exact opposite of what the Bible says about sin. Sin is not casting off the shackles of God's really ugly moral law and having freedom to follow whatever I desire. Actually, Scripture presents that as an enslavement to the slave master within and ultimately a slavery that will lead to your doom and your destruction. It is a diametrically opposed idea. And I want to make this very clear. You were born into it. I was born into it. We did not stumble into it accidentally. It is our birthright. Right? Our great, great, great grandfather, Adam, sinned. We entered into his sin. And we all make the decision every day to sin. And so we are born into slavery. Slavery is not Freedom, therefore, I mean, sin is not freedom, therefore, sin is slavery. 
And it's important that we realize that because Jesus' statement makes it clear that the only way to be free of sin's enslaving power is to admit first that you are a slave. It's to admit that you do not have the power to conquer sin on your own, that you were born under a dominion that you cannot escape from, to admit our inability, our weakness, and then, and hear this, to follow him to freedom. To follow him to freedom. Jesus is not offering you in freedom a mere gift bag thing, a nice thing. It's good to believe in Jesus because it's a nice thing to do. He's saying, if you do not, you will live and exist in slavery forever. It makes me think of uh, Harriet Tubman, who was the, uh, the famous conductor of the Underground Railroad during the time of slavery in the South. And she would rescue slaves. I think everybody's probably heard of her if you took even like a first or second grade civics class. But, but you know, she was the one that would, that would conduct the slaves from the south to the north, offering freedom. And she was asked one time famously, you know, what was your biggest hindrance? You know, what was your biggest danger? And she said these words, which I think are profound. She says, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if they'd but known that they were slaves. You see, we live in a world of people that think that they are free and yet ultimately are in bondage. And Jesus doesn't have anything to offer to people who say they're free until they first recognize the shackles that are on them through the sins that they commit. And this brings two realities to the forefront. First, that we must reckon with our inherent slavery. Everything that I've said thus far about what Jesus does in freeing us means nothing if you think in and of yourselves as you were born into this world that you are free. Harriet Tubman could have freed a thousand more saves if they had known but they were slaves. And so the first step towards freedom begins with recognizing that you are a slave in your own strength. And then secondly, this reality that if the Son sets you free, oh church, you will be free indeed. I think the thing that, that grieves me is that not only do we have people recognize and not even see the fact that they're in slavery, but then we have so many people who are living in the freedom of Christ that have been set free from the power of sin, and yet they don't know that power. They have had the shackles of sin cast off. They are free in Christ. They are free indeed because the Son has set them free. And yet they still live with this reality as if Satan and sin were their enslaved master. And I think we need to hear the words of Paul in Romans 6 where Paul says, You must consider yourselves then dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not enough for Jesus to set you free. Church, you've got to believe that you are free. Because it's only in the believing that you are free and believing in the one who set you free that you are able to walk in the freedom from sin that Christ intends for you. Amen? Amen. So this should both sober you and make you incredibly joyful because the Son sets free. Now what's interesting is that after this, Jesus has been talking about slavery he now moves to talk about sonship and fatherhood. So in verse 38, he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, 
and you do what you have heard from your father. Which leads us into the second alternative that Jesus, I think, puts before us. And that's we are either being a son of God or a child of Satan. A son of God or a child of Satan. I know that there are many well-meaning Christians who will use the language, well, we're all children of God. And I think if they by that mean that we're all made in the image of God, and so therefore as made in the image of God, we deserve dignity, we deserve respect, we, we need to be treated with a, a certain type of way. In that case, I'd say you're right. I mean, we, we all are made in God's image. But being made in God's image is not the same thing as being a child of God. You see, a child of God is a special relationship where he cares for, protects, loves, and is intimate with you. And you, and you alternatively offer up submission and respect and love and affection for him. And that is not something that we're born into by being born into this world. It's something that God must do. And it's interesting because if there's anybody that could probably be, I know you could say excused for believing that they were a child of God by virtue of their birth. It was probably the Jews, right? Because they were a part of God's chosen people, right? They were descendants of Abraham, right? That's a pretty big deal. So certainly they should be able to claim that special relationship with God. But hear the words of Jesus in verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father, right? So they're, they're saying, you're saying something about who my father is, but let me just tell you, my father is Abraham, all right? I'm a Jew. And then Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did essentially what's going to what's happening here is that they do what I just explained to you they say you said this is my father is I'm doing the works of my father well let me tell you who my father is my father is Abraham and then Jesus looks at them and he says something amazing he says if you were the sons of Abraham if you were Abraham's children now were they Abraham's children according to the flesh absolutely so what is he saying here? He is calling into doubt not their physical lineage, but their spiritual descent. In other words, he's saying it is not important that you are the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild of Abraham. What's important is that you share Abraham's faith. That's the decisive factor. It is not about your physical lineage. It is about your spiritually being of one with Abraham. And because you have rejected my words and you have rejected the truth that I got from God, very different than Abraham did. Remember, Abraham heard God, believed God, and acted on that. Right? It was his faith that was counted to him as righteousness. He heard God, believed God, obeyed God. That was what marked Abraham. Right? And he's saying just by virtue of being his great, great descendant does not mean you're like Abraham. The question is, how do you respond when God speaks to you? And then he's making this really, really important case. I'm speaking to you from God. Jesus points to Abraham's faith as marking them as God's children. And Abraham, or excuse me, Jesus is coming and he's telling them the truth that I heard from God. Which means one important thing. They are not true 
truly Abraham's children. So what are they? Well, Jesus continues in verse 44, because Jesus hates controversy and doesn't want to do anything ever to offend anyone ever. And he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of all lies. In other words, he's saying that the reason that you are not hearing me as I am speaking to you from God, children of the Abraham, children of Abraham according to the flesh, the reason that you're not hearing me is because you're actually of the spiritual lineage of Satan. And ultimately what he's saying here is that because the enemy is the one who lies and hates the truth, the enemy is the one who destroys and kills and does not love the life, you are proving that you are of him by your response to me and the fact that I'm speaking to you the truth and there's no place for you in the truth. There's no place for the truth in you. So in verse 7 he said, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is because that you are not of God. So let me make an important point here. The reason people ultimately reject the gospel when they hear the gospel clearly proclaimed is not ultimately because they are ignorant. It's not ultimately because it wasn't clearly communicated enough, but ultimately because their heart in who they are, they do not want to receive the truth because the enemy is at work in them. And I think this is just a sobering word for us to hear because Jesus is removing any neutral ground. He's saying this very clearly. Your reaction to me in my words, it actually shows your spiritual state. See, we want to create this massive middle ground of people that are just okay and they just don't believe Jesus, but it's just because they've got a good heart and they just don't know enough. Church, there is only very clearly two sides here. You are either going to be a child of God or you're a child of the enemy and it is your reaction to the words of Jesus that determine and dictate which of those two you are. Now, for some of you, you're hearing me like now and you're like, I don't like this, Jesus. <laughs> this pastor, like, he just seems to be like want to step on my toes. He wants to offend people. I bet he's just like, he just enjoys saying people are child of children of Satan. Like, I bet he just likes that. I don't know what you're thinking. But let me just say this. These are the words of Jesus. And if you react negatively to this, and if you reject this, the problem is not that you're rejecting me, you're rejecting the words of Jesus. And ultimately, that says far more about you than it does me. It says far more about where your heart is than it does about me. Because how we respond to Jesus' words shows where we are spiritually. And so I just want to ask you this morning, how do you respond to Jesus' words when they are hard for you to hear? When they are embarrassing? 
What about when Jesus speaks so clearly to the sins of our culture? Are you embarrassed of those words? Do you reject those words? Or maybe even more poignantly, what about when he speaks to your sin? What about when he says things that step on your toes? You see, we've got two options. We can either believe that he is the son of God, that he is speaking from God and therefore it is for our good, or we can reject him outright. But there is no middle ground. Mark 8, 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. It's so clear throughout Scripture that how you respond to Jesus' words dictates where you are spiritually. And ultimately, to reject Jesus' words is to reject Jesus. And that leads us to our third and final alternative that I believe Jesus gives us in the text, and that is this. We're either finding our life in Christ or we're seeking the death of Christ. We're either finding our life in Christ or seeking the death of Christ. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is, all right, Pastor, you're getting a little too dramatic here. I don't think this is in the text. We'll follow along. Now, I think one thing you may have noticed that we are now living in America in the post-Christian West. Do you know what that means, post-Christian West? It means that we used to live in a time and a place where everybody kind of grew up in church. And we're in the South, so this is like a lot of people still do this, okay? Like everybody believed in God, believed in God. Everybody was a part of the church. Everybody grew up in church. But now we're moving past that where each successive generation is less likely to be involved or even have a faith background. And so what I have found is that in our culture, post-Christian, or you could even probably say, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it probably been very similar, is that people have a lot of familiarity, like a distant familiarity with the things of Jesus. And if you have a distant familiarity with Jesus, most people seem to have a pretty good perception of him. Have you noticed that? I don't like the church. Organized religion, but Jesus, I like him. I like Jesus. And when people tell me that, I always think it's because you haven't really investigated him that much. Because the reality is those that really were hearing him most clearly and those were having the kind of the most upfront interaction with him had a very different reaction to him. As we see in verse 48, And the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They've had enough of this, right? <laughs> He's told me I'm a child of Satan, so here's the thing. Jesus, you must be crazy. You must be a Samaritan and a demon. Now, why these two kind of slurs? Well, first, as a Samaritan, the Samaritans were like the enemies of the Jews, and they were like the half-bloods, so they had an impure race, and they had an impure religion. So he's saying here, you cannot possibly be from God because you're a Samaritan. You have impure blood, which is somewhat ironic based on what he's just been saying about how it's not your descent from Abraham, but ultimately your spiritual response to me, right? So he, he's bringing that out. And then secondly, they say you have a demon. Why is this just a slur that 2,000 years ago, they were just telling everybody that you have a demon? No, they were making this point. You are saying something so destructive to our religion, it must come from the father of lies. So not only are you a Samaritan, but you have a demon. So at this point, Jesus has lost the crowd. 
<laughs> right? Like at this point, they are not the fawning, adulating, oohs and ahs crowd. At this point, they're hostile. And so if he were a church growth expert, he'd be like, circle the wagons, right? Like time to pull it back in. You need to be talking about like your gentle and lowly Jesus right now. Like we don't need any more of this Jesus. You need to bring him back in. But again, as he does over and over and over again through the Gospel of John, Jesus doesn't do that. He doubles down because then he continues in verse 51 after they basically just rejected him, basically just told him he has a demon. And he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So again, he begins with this truly, truly beginning, this, this way to mark what he is saying as a important, true truth. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So he could have just said eternal life. He could have just said you will live a long life. He could have just said you will live a blessed life. All of those would be true. But he says it very explicitly in such a way that no one can misunderstand him. If you obey my word, you will never see death. Now, how do you think they responded to that? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, if somebody got on TV and told me that, I would be rightly skeptical, correct? You're going to tell me that if I follow you, if I do what you say I'm supposed to do, I will never see death? Then he must be demon-possessed because what he's doing is he's claiming that I am, he is better than everybody that has ever come before, every prophet. So that's exactly what they recognized. And the Jews said to him in verse 52, now we, know that, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my words, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? See, they understood what was going on. They recognized Jesus just was like, I'm just the next prophet. I'm just the next revelation of God. They are saying, they understand that he's saying that he is greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Ezekiel, greater than Isaiah. He is greater than every Old Testament prophet that they revered and held up. They understand exactly the weight of what he's saying. And again, Jesus could have been like, well, no, no, let me clarify. But then he goes and says this, verse 56. Your father Abraham, the one you are so proud of, the one that you are connected to, the one that you think is going to get you into heaven, that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That Abraham that you're claiming your relationship to is that your path to heaven, he rejoiced that he would see my day, he saw it and was glad. In other words, y'all don't realize it, but Abraham was looking forward to me. I want you to stop for a moment and empathize with these Jews because it's really easy to get unnecessarily critical here. These were conservatives. We in the South, right? These would have been your Bible-believing church folks. Like they were conservative. They held to the authority of the Jewish scriptures. They, they loved and respected their forefathers. They were all about them. And they understood that what Jesus was saying was that no longer does the locus of authority and the path to life come from listening to the prophets. It comes from listening to me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
And so what he's saying here is that I know that you've had the Old Testament. I know that you respect Abraham. I know that you've got Moses. But I am now the way you relate to God. I am now the life. I am where it comes from. I am where liberty comes from. I am what makes you a son of God. I am what gives you life. It doesn't come from following the old covenant. It comes in me. As shocking as that statement is, though, is as incredible as that would have been for them to wrap their minds around, no longer, it's not the old covenant that we keep in order to be right with you, in order to be a son. Now we, we believe in you. You give us life, Jesus. That's a, that's a massive shift. And as big as a massive shift that is, it, it doesn't even come close to comparison to what he says next. Because in verse 58, and this is kind of the, the summary statement, kind of the climax of the whole text, we read this. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is a Jewish carpenter speaking 2,000 years ago. Before Abraham was, I am. What we have here is the clearest and most powerful statement of divinity by Jesus himself that may be made in the entire scriptures. If you don't know what that I am phrase, if you're like, well, it just sounds like Jesus has got bad grammar right here. The Old Testament Jews, the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. He was using Yahweh's personal covenant name and applying it to himself, saying that before Abraham even existed, I was Abraham's God. I was the God he worshiped. Do you guys think about how crazy that is? You have to go back to Exodus 3, 13 through 15, where Israel is, they're in captivity and they're in slavery in Egypt. God sends Moses to them. And then in verse 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to them, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you, and this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Jesus is claiming that he is that God. I don't even know if it's possible to pray be described to you how that would have landed. This illegitimate son of a Jewish carpenter claiming to be Yahweh, Israel's covenant God in the flesh. The only hint of how we think they might have received it is in the next verse where they say, where the text says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. Did they get what he was saying? Oh yeah, they got it. They just didn't believe him. 
They were okay Jesus being a moral teacher. They were okay for Jesus to be a prophet. They were okay for all these things. But the moment he claimed that he was Yahweh, it's time to shut this guy down. They understood exactly what he was saying. They just didn't believe him. And so what Jesus is doing is he is helping us see that there are really only two right options to what he said. Either you see him as the source of all life, or you see him as someone who should be deserving of death. You must either be a savior, Jesus, or a pawn of Satan. There's no other choice. And I know I've used this quote before, but it was too perfect. There's this famous quote of C.S. Lewis where he says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something far worse. And I just want to maybe stop for a moment right before we end, and I just want to ask you the question. It's very easy for you to come in and out of church to hear a little bit of a pastor says and then forget it as soon as you go out, and I recognize that. Is Jesus the God of the universe? Who do you say he is? It is not enough for you to kind of ambivalently or just kind of give lip service to the idea of like, oh yeah, Jesus, he's God. You either need to make up your decision and recognize that he is either a terrible person or he is God in the flesh. And before you leave here, and we're about to spend some time celebrating the Lord's Supper as we spend time reflecting and thinking about what he has done, I want you to ask yourself that question, who is he? And if he is, I am, the God of the universe, what am I doing about it? Because as we close, I just want to return to our previous analogy that we started this all with, off with. True faith in Jesus doesn't just get in the wheelbarrow. It sees Jesus as the only one that can carry us from our present state of slavery, death, and a child of Satan to the side of freedom, life, and adoption into God's family. True faith in God centers on the glory of Jesus and sees his words not as something that need to be rejected, but received and relied upon for life. Those are your two options. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you that you are a faithful God. We know you were a faithful father because not only did you say you would bring about the salvation of your people, Lord, you sent us your son in the flesh. And Lord, I, I pray, Father, that the truth of your word, Lord, would weigh heavy on our hearts and that you would help us to extol you, to glorify you, to believe in you, to rely on you, that our lives would rightly orbit around the great I am. And Father, that we would even understand as we move into this time of the Lord's Supper something of what he has done for us. It's in your name we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.